It seems today that there are more scams going around than ever before. Uh, you get a phone call perhaps uh, purporting to be from your bank. Uh, then you get a, a verification code on your, your phone uh, that they've sent to you. You, you. you perhaps give them the verification code and before you know it, your bank account is empty. Or you get an email from a friend. They're apparently stuck on holiday without their passport or money. And they're asking you to send them some funds to help get them home. And we've all, we've all heard of people, uh, whether known to us or not, who have been victims of fraud of some kind or other. Uh, some have had their identities stolen. Others who've lost their life savings. And we worry, perhaps, about it happening to us. And so we do like it when con men are exposed uh, whether it's through a police sting or, or a TV documentary where, where crooks are caught on hidden cameras. Well, at the time of Elijah, a, a scam was being carried out on a massive scale. Uh, not primarily for people's money though, but for their religious devotion. A fraud where 450 con men had managed to convince most of the nation to worship a false god called Baal. And it's been going on for years. But in this chapter, the true God sends his man, Elijah, to expose the fraud and unmask the con men once and for all. But of course, this isn't simply a fraud that happened years ago. Uh, the world is still full of people who want to scam you when it comes to God, who want to stop you trusting in the true God. And he'll try anything to rob you of your spiritual identity. The world wants to blind you as to what's really important. But God wants to open your eyes. And so as we come to this chapter, we're going to see three things about the real God. And the first is that the real God works in different ways. The real God works in different ways. There are a few traps that we can fall into when we uh, focus in on one Bible character like Elijah. Uh, one is that we can end up focusing on them rather than on Jesus. But another problem is that it can be quite depressing when we think about our own lives in comparison. Uh, look back to, to the last chapter uh, at what we've seen Elijah do in, in our three sermons in this series so far. He, he appears out of nowhere. He, he tells the king that there's going to be a drought. And then he goes and lives in the desert where he's miraculously provided for. God then uses Elijah to miraculously provide for a widow and her son. When the boy unexpectedly dies, Elijah raises him from the dead. And now in this chapter he confronts the, the evil empire of Ahab and his 450 Baal worshipping priests. You know, it maybe seem, seems a bit uh, like, like, a, like a movie script that, than like our lives from Monday through Saturday. Elijah, it seems, is doing more exciting things in a, in a week than we might do in a lifetime. But perhaps we're too quick to identify with the main character in a story. We tend to read 1 Kings 18 and put ourselves in Elijah's shoes. But why not put ourselves in the shoes of the hundred prophets who are hiding in caves 
or even the rest of the people of Israel whose loyalties are split between the Lord and Baal. In verse 7, do we identify with Elijah rather than Obadiah? Because actually, if we, if we pause here uh, and, and look at Obadiah, rather than jumping straight to Elijah, it's tremendously encouraging. Because while Elijah has been running about doing the spectacular stuff and then hiding, uh, hiding undercover, Obadiah has been quietly, faithfully serving God. Obadiah isn't in what people would call full-time Christian work, uh, whatever that means. He's, he's not a prophet. Uh, and we're maybe confused about that because there is a prophet in the Bible called Obadiah, but this isn't him. This Obadiah is, is a civil servant and he's got a terrible boss because his boss is King Ahab. Uh, one of the worst kings to ever rule over God's people. But Obadiah also knows that he's serving a higher king. His very name means servant of the Lord. And so he secretly looks after 100 of God's prophets. You know, we've, we've heard of, of Corey Ten Boom and others whose, whose families helped look after Jews during uh, the Second World War. Imagine hiding 100 of them. Uh, and of course, just like with, with those hiding Jews, this would have been a, a highly risky business. Uh, you're not just going to get a slap on the wrist if you're found with, with, with 100 of the Lord's prophets or find with Jews hiding in your home. And to make Obadiah's task harder, there's a famine going on, I suppose just like in the war as well. Uh, it's not just that you're trying to get enough food uh, to go round to, to help your, your hidden guests, but there's also rationing going on, so there's less food for everyone to begin with. But somehow Obadiah manages to find enough bread and water for two cavefuls of prophets. Uh, not enough to, uh, for them to be living in luxury, but enough for them to survive. Now it's true that some people see Obadiah as a bit of a sellout. Uh, this man, surely he, he's a compromiser. He, he works for the government. He, he won't take a public stand for God like Elijah. He, he's a coward. But the problem, I think, with that interpretation is verse 3, which tells us that Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. Yes, he's perhaps overly scared that Elijah's going to disappear on him and Ahab's going to kill him. But after all, Elijah has a track record. Uh, the last time he, he turned up, he, he then promptly disappeared for three years. Uh, and we learn from this, this chapter that an international cross-border manhunt wasn't able to track him down. Uh, and Obadiah uh, knows that if he goes away from Elijah and goes to Ahab, uh, the Holy Spirit could easily whisk Elijah off somewhere before they get back. Uh, and if that happens, he would be a dead man. Uh, telling Ahab that Elijah was here and then uh, finding out that Elijah wasn't here, it would be a bit like telling airport security that, that you have a bomb. Uh, you, you can't really just turn around and say, well, oh, sorry, my mistake, uh, and hope to move on. 
So yes, he'd rather not die if it can be helped. Uh, but I don't think that makes him a coward. And so in Elijah and Obadiah, we have two people serving God in very different ways. One is up front and in the public eye. And the other is quietly, consistently and unspectacularly doing what he's doing. But neither is better than the other. Christians aren't called to be clones. That's what the cults want. They want people who are copies of each other. But God has given us distinct personalities, distinct abilities. And he works through those personalities, not against them. And so uh, we don't need to get frustrated at each other that we're not gifted in the same ways, but rather we can rejoice that what we are weak at, others are stronger at, and vice versa. Most of us aren't called to live in the limelight. Uh, We're just called to quietly get on with what God has given us to do. Uh, And we don't have to be people that we're not. God uses us. Uh, with the, the, the different uh, gifts and abilities uh, that he has given to us. Uh, so the real God uses different sorts of people, but he also works in different ways. Because in the last chapter, he miraculously provided for Elijah uh, and a widow and her son with a never-ending supply of flour and oil. But not in this chapter. For the hundred prophets in caves, uh, there is no miracle. Just the steady provision of Obadiah. And I think the lesson here is don't despise God working in in ordinary ways. Don't demand the spectacular. uh, And don't miss the fact that a lot of what God does, even in scripture, is ordinary. That it's not spectacular. Uh, I'm not sure if you've heard of John Wimber. He was the founder of of the Vineyard Churches. And when he was first converted, he started to read about all the miracles in the Bible. And he couldn't figure out why they weren't happening in his local church. So he went to his pastor and said, "Why? when are you going to do all the stuff? His pastor said, what stuff? Uh, Wimber replied, you know all the stuff like walking in water, healing the sick and raising the dead. And yet even in the Bible, miracles only happen, or they only tend to happen at special times. And the ministry of Elijah was one of those special times. But even during Elijah's time, we have 101 prophets and only one is provided for miraculously. The other 100 are provided for in ordinary ways. But in both cases, God is the one providing. God can do the stuff, if we want to call it that. And sometimes he does. He did for Elijah. But for the others, God's provision was more mundane, run-of-the-mill, unspectacular. But it was still his provision. I suppose just, just like those who hid who hid Jews during, during the world wars, during World War II. Uh, he didn't miraculously, God didn't miraculously hide uh, people. Uh, well, well, perhaps he did, but most of the stories we know are just people uh, doing what they could to, to keep others safe. 
And actually the, these hundred prophets in the cave had as much reason to praise God when they saw Obadiah coming as Elijah did when he saw the ravens coming. So the real God is a God of variety. Uh, he made the world in colour, uh, not black and white. He doesn't just make one kind of tree or one kind of flower. And he doesn't just make one kind of Christian either. And so you don't have to feel inadequate when you see God using other Christians to do things that you never could. God doesn't call an Obadiah to be an Elijah. And don't think you can't serve God properly where you are. That you need to quit your job and become a a missionary if you really want to make a difference for God. if, If you're really serious about serving God. Obadiah was just a regular guy in a tough work environment, but God used him. Sometimes God does the the miraculous. We believe in that. Uh, And he uses, uh, at times, in the Bible, people that he has gifted in extraordinary ways. But often God just uses normal people and unglamorous methods. And that gives us all hope. It gives us all hope. Even in church life, there are those periods in history when, when God will work spectacularly. Uh, but mostly it's just week by week, nothing spectacular. But the saints are built up and the lost are converted. Uh, don't always look for the spectacular. The real God works in different ways. Secondly, the real God exposes the emptiness of false religion. Uh, The real God exposes the emptiness of false religion. Uh, Boys and girls, do you know what mistaken identity is? Uh, Mistaken identity is when when people think somebody is someone else. Uh, There was once a, a man in America who had robbed 24 banks. He was called John Dillinger. And so the police were looking for this bank robber. But he had a lookalike. There was another man who lived uh, about 50 miles from his hometown. And this other man uh, looked almost identical. They they both had had a mole next to one eye. They both had a scar on their left wrist. wrist. Uh, And this this lookalike was mistaken for the outlaw so often that he was arrested 17 times and apparently shot in the leg 11 times by over-enthusiastic policemen. Uh, And only when Dillinger, the bank robber, was gunned down by federal agents could his lookalike rest easy. Uh, So it was mistaken identity with serious consequences. But we could say in verse 17 here that we have mistaken identity. uh, Which doesn't though spring from ignorance but from willful blindness. When Ahab finally sees the man he's been hunting for three years he says, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? You know Ahab is right that there is a troubler of Israel going round. But as he points at Elijah he doesn't see all the fingers pointing back at himself. Ahab had done more evil in the Lord than all who were before him. He had married evil Queen Jezebel and set up state-sponsored idolatry in Israel. And God, through Elijah, 
had announced that the judgment for Ahab's sin would be no rain on the land. And that famine should have brought Ahab to his senses. But rather than seeking God, he spends his energy seeking grass. Like so many today, even though God is shouting to him through the events of his life, he just gets on with what's in front of him. Uh, he looks for, uh, for worldly solutions to his immediate problems rather than, than addressing the underlying issues. He tries to, to address the problems that sin has brought into his life without dealing, without confessing with the sin underneath. And he blames Elijah for the state of the nation. He blames Elijah for the famine. And not much has changed today. God and his people still get the blame for uh, pretty much everything that's wrong in the world. Uh, a quick search on Google uh, brings up claims that religion is responsible for violence, war, terrorism, death, the dark ages. But Elijah's response in verse 18 is just as true today as it was then. I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandment of the Lord and followed the Beals. Our nation is in a very similar position to that of Israel in Elijah's day. Once Israel had followed God, once God's commands were the law of the land, but things have changed. Our nation has abandoned the commandments of the Lord like Ahab. Our nation calls good evil and it calls evil good. But how did that work out for Ahab? Uh, well, not too well. Look at him here, reduced to wandering about the land, looking for water and grass. It's a pathetic picture of a king. And he's brought it on himself. How is abandoning God working out for the UK? God's word is being ignored. Has it led to, to more stability? Has it led to happier families? Has it led to less anxiety? Quite the opposite. Uh, and listen, this is to one American author uh, speaking out about something that our society celebrates. This is an American author who was raised by a transgender parent warning that it's not something to be celebrated. She says, my father experienced with uh, my makeup and clothes and by seventh grade I had decided that alcohol was the easiest method to numb my own pain. By the beginning of high school I wondered if life was worth living. And yet as Christians we're the ones that are told we're troubling the country. Just like Ahab and Jezebel's day, the state will use its power to try and silence all opposition to its anti-God agenda. Yet those who ignore God and his laws aren't going to be able to ignore the consequences of what they're doing forever. And so look what happens in this chapter when things come to the crunch. Look what happens when the moment of truth arrives in verse 26. The God that they have been trusting in for years can't do anything for them. There was no voice, no one answered. 
These false prophets have convinced others for years that Baal is real. Uh, Perhaps they even believe it themselves. But at the time they need Baal most, there was no voice and no one answered. In verse 28, the, the horror of false religion is exposed for what it really is. As Baal's followers, uh, they they cut themselves until the blood flows. Uh, And that too is a picture of life without Jesus Christ. People hurting themselves by making bad decisions in the hope that they'll get what the world promises them. To to follow what the world uh, says will bring us happiness is is to, to inflict punishment on ourselves. The world does promise much, but it cannot give lasting happiness. Verse 29, they raved on, but there was no voice. No one paid attention. One day the emptiness of life without Jesus Christ will be exposed. For the prophets of Baal, they would realise too late that they had given their lives to serving the wrong God. Because the day they realised also turned out to be the day they died. So don't leave it too late to come to this realisation. The world will tell you to forget about God or or at least not to worry about him for, for a few years yet. But many have their lives cut short before they ever do anything about it. Others do make it to the end but they've rejected Jesus so many times that it's too late. And like those in this chapter... In their last moments, there is just a deathly silence. How many people still think that a a church connection will save them, but it won't. And in his grace, God wants to expose the emptiness of false religion, that we might stop trusting in it before it's too late. The real God exposes the emptiness of false religion. Thirdly and finally, we see the real God vindicated against all the odds. The real God vindicated against all the odds. The fraud of Baal worship has been going on for years. Three and a half years of famine should have proved how pathetic trusting in Baal was. And yet it hasn't yet woken the people up to the true God. So enough is enough. It's time to expose the scam once and for all. In verse 19, Elijah tells Ahab to gather all the people to Mount Carmel along with the prophets of Baal and the goddess Asherah. Then he sets before them the famous challenge of verse 21. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Uh, There's an interesting example of how language changes over time here in verse 21. The older versions, I think, how long will you you halt between two different opinions? And for us, halt means to stop, uh, but but halt originally meant limp. Uh, Someone who was halt was was lame. Uh, So how long will you limp between two different opinions? And that is what they were doing. They They were going between the two. Uh, it wasn't that, that Israel had totally abandoned the true God. They wanted both. They wanted God and Baal. They wanted both and. But Elijah tells him it has to be either or. 
And perhaps we've known that, that there has been a stage in our lives when we, when we think we can have either or, or when we think we can have both and, rather, but God tells us that it has to be either or. The people want to hold on to what they have. They don't want to be left without Baal as a backup if the Lord doesn't make the crops grow. But Elijah tells them that they cannot serve both, and neither can we. Uh, Trying to leave your options open is choosing to reject God. But the people don't answer because they're still not ready to commit. So God in his grace gives them another chance. He's going to prove once and for all that he's the real God. So that the people are left in no doubt. And Elijah gives the Baal worshippers all the advantages For a start, Baal was usually pictured with a lightning bolt in his hand. So uh, causing a fire uh, should have been right up Baal's street. Uh, Then in verse 22, Elijah, it's not Elijah feeling sorry for himself uh, when he talks about the numerical advantage that the prophets of Baal has. He's simply reminding them uh, how outnumbered he is. In verse 23, he lets them choose uh, which, which bulls they want. Then in verse 25, he lets them go first. Uh, And by doing that, he's giving them an open open goal. Because if Baal answers with fire, uh, there's not going to be any chance for Elijah to have a go. If Baal answers with fire, Elijah is a dead man before he even has his his shot. And Elijah lets them go at it all day. He's in no rush. He mocks them a bit at noon when the sun would have been hottest. Uh, That would have been their best chance for a fire. Uh, But he lets them go right on through till the evening. But eventually it's clear that nothing is going to happen. So the time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah repairs the altar of the Lord. In verse 33 he does something that humanly speaking is suicidal. He tells the people to fill jars with water and pour them over the bull and over the wood. And then he tells them to do it again and again. He wants to leave the people in absolutely no doubt that there's no trickery going on. That that the only way this sacrifice is going to be burned up is if God is real. And then he prays. I think it's interesting to notice the difference between Elijah's prayer and the prayers of the prophets of Baal. Because there's none of the ranting and raving. Elijah is earnest, but he's not frantic. He's earnest, but he's not frantic. Because he knows what the true God is like. He knows that God doesn't need badgered or coerced or manipulated into doing something. Perhaps we can even fall into that mistake as Christians. Perhaps we think that that if we can just stir up enough passion, if only we can show God that we're really serious, then he'll do something. But that's not how it works. Jesus taught his disciples not to heap up many words, but, but to pray simply and sincerely. And so Elijah prays calmly, yet passionately and earnestly, that God would answer him and glorify himself. And God does. Fire falls and consumes the offering. And the watching crowd 
they would have known that at certain key moments in their history, God had sent down fire to show that he'd accepted an offering. God did it at the tabernacle in the first service in the wilderness. He did it again following the dedication of Solomon's temple. It's God's green light that his worship has been accepted. When the people see it, they fall on their faces and say, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. After years of compromise, after years of not being willing to take a stand for God, imagine it, imagine it, people turning back to God, saying, The Lord, he is God. Baal worship is exposed for the scam that it is, and both the Lord and his people are vindicated. That's what will happen one day. It will happen one day for Jesus and his people in the eyes of a world that has despised them. And that's probably where some people would like the story to end. Because then we get to verse 40 and some would sigh with disappointment. We've had a wonderful day at Mount Carmel and now Elijah has to go and spoil it by, by killing the false prophets. But Elijah here, he's not acting in a fit of rage. Or he, he's not brutally taking revenge. Uh, the sentence for those who taught rebellion against the Lord God. Who, who, those who taught people to rebel against God. It was capital punishment. Deuteronomy 13 laid that out. Uh, and if we are shocked by this, uh, perhaps it shows how lightly we think of sin. Would you be annoyed if a loved one uh, had their, their bank account emptied? Would you be angry? Well, I think, yes, you'd be righteously angry. You would want whoever had done it to be punished. But how much more a scam aimed not at taking people's money, but taking their souls uh, this cancer in the nation has to be cut out. The, the prophets of Baal have to be killed. So if you want to see the seriousness of sin, look at what happens to these false prophets. And yet above all, if you want to see the seriousness of sin, look at the cross. Because if there had been any other way to deal with sin, Jesus wouldn't have died. Mount Carmel points us forward to another mountain outside Jerusalem where the fire of God's judgment fell on Jesus. At Carmel, after three years, God sends rain to renew the land. In Jerusalem, after three days, God raises Jesus from the dead, bringing salvation to the world. In both cases, the fire of judgment is followed by the rain of blessing. But you can't have one without the other. If you want the, the rain of God's blessing to fall on your parched life, you must first have your sin dealt with by the one sacrifice that God has given his eternal green light to. And so the scam is unmasked. The real God is a God of variety, of life and of surprising grace. Those who would want to lead you down a path of, of scepticism, of deconstruction of Christless religion. They're trying to get you to trust in something that will fail you when it comes to the crunch. But there is a hope that will not let you down. The renewal and newness of life you long for 
can be found on the mountain of the final sacrifice. The real God has revealed himself above all in Jesus Christ. And only through Jesus can we come to him. Amen. Well, let's continue our journey from Carmel to Calvary as we turn to Psalm 20. Psalm 20, the the whole psalm, page 35. Uh, The tune will be communion number 7. This is a song sung by God's people about God's appointed king. And it is only finally fulfilled in Christ. In verse 1, God did give heed to him in his distress in Gethsemane. And in verse 3, he accepted his sacrifice on the cross. And so in verse 5, we rejoice in his salvation. Those taken in by the scam will fall. Uh, Their frenzied cry will go unanswered. Verse 6, when they are made to bow and fall... But at the end of verse 5, those whose prayers are offered in Jesus' name will be heard. So all of Psalm 20, uh, we'll stand to sing praise.